Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing cultivating healthy mind states or mental states. Essentially, we're going to be discussing what's called the Brahma Viharas. These are four mental states that need to be cultivated in the mind and practiced in daily life in order for one to progress and fully attain enlightenment. So we're going to be discussing those today and helping you to understand what they are and how to cultivate them and also how to practice them in daily life. So let's discuss these mental states called the Brahma Viharas. As we know, if you've been studying Gautama Buddha's teachings, the path that leads to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. This is the eight steps, starting with right view, going all the way through to right concentration. There are eight individual steps that lead the mind through various trainings in order to reach enlightenment. These steps are not to be practiced one and mastering and then moving to the other and then moving to the next. It's actually a life practice that you practice all at once and you're kind of deepening your understanding and deepening your practice of each of these steps as you progress in your practice further and further. Almost all the Buddhist teachings plug into the Eightfold Path in one way or another. So whether it's the Four Noble Truths or the Five Precepts or some of the other teachings that the Buddha shares, they pretty much all plug into the Eightfold Path in one way or another, including meditation. The Brahma Viharas, though, These are a set of teachings that are outside of the Eightfold Path. They don't show up specifically as part of the Eightfold Path that leads to enlightenment, but we know that they are part of the path that leads to enlightenment. Without learning and practicing and understanding these, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment and you would still be holding on to various qualities of the mind certain unwholesome qualities that if you don't eliminate them from the mind and cultivate these healthy mind states, then the mind wouldn't be enlightened. So even if you were practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, but yet you weren't aware of these Brahma Viharas and you hadn't cultivated them enough, then the mind is still going to be experiencing problems or discontentedness. So it's important that we study these Brahma Viharas very closely and that you get a real good grasp of what they are, how to cultivate them, and how to practice them in daily life. It's part of chapter 13, and this is probably the shortest chapter in the entire book of developing a life practice, the path that leads to Nibbana. 
So as I talk here, I'll be sharing some content beyond what's actually in the book. So let's go ahead and dive in and discuss what the Brahma Viharas are. The Brahma Viharas are four mental states or four mind states. They need to be cultivated and practiced in daily life. The first one is loving kindness. And this is one that we've talked about in previous sessions of this group learning program as it relates to the poison of hatred or anger or ill will. So we've discussed it and we've even talked about it as part of right speech, talking and speaking with a mind of loving kindness. And I've shared a little bit of content about loving kindness. What loving kindness is, is it's active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Okay, Active goodwill, a genuine interest in seeing others be well, a genuine interest in seeing others be peaceful. And not just the people that agree with you, not just your friends, not just the family, not just your co-workers, but this is all beings, everybody that you encounter, again, without judgment. And the reason why I've defined it here as active goodwill is because sometimes we might say, yeah, I love everybody or yeah, I'm kind to everybody. And we might say that, but what you really need to look at is your practice. Because as we know, loving kindness is an antidote or a cure or a remedy for this poison of hatred or anger or ill will, which is where frustration and irritation and annoyance and these other feelings come out of. So we can easily say that, yeah, I love everybody or yeah, I love everyone in the world. But it comes down to your practice is how are you practicing and are you doing that without judgment? When you're walking on the street, if you see someone who's homeless on the street, do you take a big, you know, wide gesture away from them? Are you scared? Are you, are you afraid just because they happen to be homeless? Is there judgment there that's causing the mind inside to maybe not feel so safe just because there's a homeless person here? Are there people in your life that you have hatred or anger or ill will or frustration or irritation towards, it's really important that you have active goodwill, an active interest in other beings being well. Because one who's enlightened is going to have kindness and love and a genuine interest for others to be well for all beings, not just 99% of people and there's these three or four people on the earth that you just feel like you have a lot of resentment for because of things that happened in the past. What loving kindness is about is having this active goodwill towards all beings, whether they're your friends, family, coworkers, strangers, people you've never met before, and not just human beings. This is all beings. This is animals as well. And this is any beings that you encounter. Some people encounter spiritual beings or entities, you know, dark entities, light entities. Some people maybe have encountered aliens and and they feel that, yes, aliens are 100% real and, and they exist. So this is all beings getting in touch with having active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. One of the things that might be able to help you cultivate this is what the Buddha talked about in terms of 
beings in the various realms and our previous lives. Whether you understand the cycle of rebirth at this point or not, let's just go with the assumption that you know that the cycle of rebirth is true and 100% truth. And maybe you don't know that right now, but later in practice, as your practice evolves, you may end up coming across that truth and realizing that it is 100% truth. Well, one of the things that Gautama Buddha talked about is he said that it would be difficult, essentially impossible, to find a being that exists today that hasn't previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, or some other relative. So essentially, when we were snakes, James was my sister and I was his sister. And when we were lizards, you know, Max was my grandfather and I was his granddaughter. And Bill and I were brothers when we were monkeys or who knows what, right? Essentially, what the Buddha is saying is whether it's people that are in our life today or whether it's just some stranger that we pass on the street or even if it's a cat or a stray dog, it would be impossible to find any living being that has not previously been one of our previous relatives. And if you understand that the earth has been in existence for 4.5 billion years, then you understand how we will have had multiple countless lives in the past. The Buddha talked about these eons of consistent rebirths from birth to birth to birth to birth. And he never even gives a definition of how long the eon is because he says it's essentially undefinable. It's like such a long amount of time that he couldn't even give a definite parameter of how long an eon actually is. So essentially millions of years. So if you think about 4.5 billion years, we call it the year 2020, but is it really the year 2020 considering that the earth's been here for 4.5 billion years? We kind of call it the year 2020 based on recent history. You know, I'll call Jesus's birth and death 2,000 years ago is is pretty recent history if you compare it to 4.5 billion years. So one of the ways to get in touch with having this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment is that homeless person on the street, that stray dog that's limping down the road that looks like it wants to bite you, that person on the bus who may be rude or hostile towards you, or that friendly neighbor or that friendly person who smiles at you as you're walking down the street, every single one of these people and every single one of these beings has previously been a relative of yours. So one of the ways to really get in touch with having this active goodwill for all beings is to treat each other as if we are family today, even though someone may not be a member of your immediate family in the past they have been and one of the ways that i see this play out here in thai society is as we go out in public if it's a waiter if it's a gas station attendant if it's a taxi driver whoever it is in the thai language they actually have ways of referring to people as little brother little sister older brother older sister 
mom, dad, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, and they will refer to a complete stranger who they just met or not even met, just somebody standing there. They will refer to them as their grandmother or their brother or their sister, the little brother, the little sister. And it has such a warm feeling to it. And it's very genuine the way that the Thai people share this with each other. And this is how here in Chiang Mai, at least, they choose to practice these teachings. And what you can get in touch with is in those situations where things may be a little bit rough or a little bit hostile or a little bit challenging is don't have judgment for someone who's maybe being hostile or aggressive towards you. Just have patience with them as a little brother or a little sister or as an uncle or as an aunt or a grandmother or grandfather. So loving kindness and active goodwill for all beings, all beings is very, very important because this will completely change how you interact with people in your daily life. It will completely change how you interact. You may notice that you don't have as much resentment and you can start to eliminate that. You'll notice that when people do things that maybe in the past made you a little bit uncomfortable or you caused yourself to be uncomfortable because of certain conditions, you can start to erode that. Things like resentment and other things like this, you can start to erode it through practicing this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Now, here with loving kindness, we have a practice of meditation that I've taught you guys in this program that you can practice loving kindness meditation in order to cultivate this in the mind, and then you can actually practice it in daily life. So it's important that you understand what this is and that you practice it in daily life with all beings not because anybody's watching you not because you're trying to show off to anybody not because you think there's some reward as a result of practicing loving kindness but just because in the mind and in the heart there's just this genuine humbled interest to see all beings be well and if you don't have that right now it's okay it's okay you're on the path you're learning you haven't done anything wrong you're just learning the teachings but what you need to do is get in touch more and more with what loving kindness is how to practice it how to cultivate it in the mind so that you can practice it in daily life so let me just pause and see if there's any questions on loving kindness before we continue with the other brahma viharas Hi, David. We have a question on Facebook from Helen Stacy, and Helen says, how can I heal my broken heart? And she says she's been suffering for eight years with this broken heart. So any advice for Helen? Okay, I'm going to assume that this broken heart is maybe from a past relationship, right? Like a romantic relationship or something like that. It's hard to say because you haven't given any other information whether it's somebody has passed away or a relationship, but I'll just assume it's maybe a relationship. So this goes back to craving. This goes back to attachment. We call it a broken heart, but what it is is the mind is still experiencing sadness or frustration or some kind of feelings, maybe resentment or anger. Or who knows what else is in there? 
But this is all from craving, from attachment, from desire, from the mind having this mental longing and strong eagerness to hold on to things. What you need to do is practice breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity and the things that we've talked about in some other talks. Here, people mistake love and loving kindness. They mistake it for attachment. So it's understandable that this question is coming up. The next chapter that we're going to talk about next week is actually true love to help you understand what true love is. The way that we think about love in the unenlightened state is we misunderstand love and attachment. We're calling it love, but what it really is is attachment. It's really craving. It's really desire. And this is why this question's coming up at this time. What we understand love to be in the unenlightened state is we say, I love you. Therefore, I would like you to be with me because I'm happy and I feel better when I'm with you. Okay, this is how we define love generally. There's other definitions for it, but the mind generally thinks of love as I love you, therefore I want to be with you. I love you because you make me happy and I feel good when I'm around you. And as long as you meet my expectations, I will continue to love you and I will continue to say that I do love you. But this actually isn't love. This is attachment. This is, I love you, therefore I I want you to make me happy. I want you to be with me because you make me happy. And this actually sabotages our relationships because we put these expectations and these burdens on the other person and we expect them to make us happy. But what true love is and what this love is here, when we talk about loving kindness, what true love is in a a very short time, we'll talk about it next week more deeply. What true love is, is I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. And I have no expectations of you whatsoever, right? Oftentimes what happens is when we meet somebody for the first time, when we're not aware of these teachings, is everything's very wonderful, everything's very light, we go to the movies, we have a coffee, we go to the park, the conversation's wonderful, everybody walks away feeling great. And that's because there is an attachment there. And when there is no attachment, there isn't going to be discontentness of mind. So there isn't going to be anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, all of these other things when there's no attachment. So at the beginning of a relationship, it feels quite nice and it feels quite good. But the more good that it feels, the mind starts forming this mental longing and this strong eagerness to hold on to this relationship permanently. And now that's the attachment that's forming. And the deeper and deeper that that forms, we start creating expectations for the other person that we want them to fulfill. And if they fulfill these basic expectations, then we'll say, okay, I love you. Now I'm in love with you. And then what happens is our expectations start changing and we add all these expectations to the list and no human being can possibly fulfill all of our cravings and all of our expectations that we have for the other person. And this ends up sabotaging the relationship. There's deeper and deeper attachment, probably on both sides. 
and then there's discontentedness because of the attachment so we get the anger the frustration the sadness and everything else and the relationship oftentimes falls apart and that's because we essentially have sabotaged the relationship because we don't understand love in the unenlightened state and because of our misunderstanding of what love is and we're misunderstanding love as attachment then we essentially sabotage the relationship so if you can start to understand what true love is and we'll dive into this more next week it's this genuine interest this active goodwill towards all beings that all beings are peaceful all beings are well and we have no expectation for the other person we might call this unconditional love there's no conditions on this love it's available for everybody and the beauty in this is that when you really truly understand what true love is and what loving kindness is is you can love everybody you can love every single being on this earth you can love every being that was here before us every being that's here now and every being that's going to come after us you can love everybody whereas if we define love as attachment and craving the way that the unenlightened mind wants to do there's only a limited number of people that you can do that with and that becomes very exhausting very draining and, and very troublesome so i'm not really diving into how to eliminate this attachment that you're having that's causing this pain because we've covered that in some other discussions but one of the biggest challenges that you're having here is that you're misunderstanding love you're misunderstanding this this love this pain and a lot of people associate painful feelings with love and because we misunderstand it and we don't know how to love without attachment but the more you understand how to do that you can actually have very loving very fruitful very warm relationships with not only a life partner if you choose to, to have a life partner but with all beings you can have this active goodwill this genuine interest for all beings to be well and be peaceful because if you have true love for someone you don't love them and then fall out of love with them right that's what we tend to say in the unenlightened state we say okay now i'm in love with you and we love them as long as they're meeting our expectations and then when they stop meeting our expectations we say okay i don't love you anymore but if it's true love if it's unconditional love if it's the kind of love that we're talking about here with loving kindness then you love people that you haven't even met before and you love them regardless of what they do or what they say or how they do things and you just always have a genuine interest for all beings to be well this is what true love is and also what loving kindness is thanks david really helpful answer no more questions this time okay so what you need to do with loving kindness is get in touch with what it is cultivate it through meditation and practice it in daily life towards all beings without judgment and we've discussed this in some of our other talks about how this will work to erode hatred anger ill will frustration irritation annoyance some of these type of things some of these feelings so this particular brahma vihara is very very important is loving kindness they're all important but this particular one we have some very active things that we can do right 
Now let's move on to the second one, which is compassion. Compassion is a concern for others' misfortune, right? Sometimes, perhaps depending on how you're practicing, we don't have concern for others' misfortune, right? The opposite of compassion might be selfishness, right? Being selfish, right? And if we have true compassion, that means when others have misfortune, we have a genuine concern for their misfortune. It doesn't mean that we have the carpet pulled out from under our feet and we go around and try to save every single person, but it means that when we see unfortunate things happen to people, when we see people having misfortune arise in their life, we have a genuine concern and we have concern for others' misfortune. We can't physically go out and fix every single situation that people are in and everybody's experiencing their own karma, but we can have a genuine concern for others' misfortune. If we were kind of mischievous, if we were kind of being sarcastic or if we were kind of taking joy and seeing or, or being happy and seeing unfortunate things happen to other people, this is kind of like a, a mind that doesn't have compassion. Sometimes there's people in the world that look at others' situation and their misfortune and they, they don't have any compassion. They don't feel any concern or any feelings for these other beings. It's just like, oh, that's their fault. They, they did that to themselves and okay, whatever. But if you're going to be an enlightened being and you're on this path, then you're going to cultivate this compassion, this genuine interest, this concern, this concern for others' misfortune. And even though we recognize that everybody's situation in life is based on their own decisions and their own gamma, we can at least have concern for them. And this is part of the path is understanding compassion and cultivating that in daily life through your practice. There's no actual meditation for this, but the more that you get in touch with what I talked about previously about how all beings that exist in the world have previously been our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, or some other relative, then it becomes easier and easier to have concern for others' misfortune and, and compassion for all beings. The next one is sympathetic joy. You'll sometimes hear people refer to this as empathetic joy. What sympathetic joy is, is it's a feeling of joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. Essentially, the opposite of sympathetic joy would be jealousy. Right? If I feel jealous, then I see somebody else being successful. Either they got a good job, they got a good income, they got a new house, they got a new pair of shoes, they got a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, they got a new baby. Some success is coming to them in their life and I feel jealous about it. Or I'm helping this person and I'm trying to provide them maybe some guidance if they've asked me for guidance, but they've achieved success without my contribution. I didn't contribute to it, but they became successful irregardless of my assistance. And we can sometimes feel jealous. 
So we need to convert that into sympathetic joy, where when another person is successful in life, no matter what it is, whether we contributed to it or not, that we feel joy for that other person. It's like, oh, they're successful or they had some good thing happen to them. That's great. That's wonderful. I feel joy for them and a genuine joy, not just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm glad for you, Barbara. You got a new job. Like, okay, good job. And then kind of like inside, you're kind of mulling over like, God, I wish that was me. Like, why does it have to be Barbara? Like, I work so much harder than her. She's the one who got the promotion and I feel like I deserved it. Right. It's like you can't have those thoughts because it's going to cause discontentness of mind. It's going to cause discontentness and this jealousy is going to come out in various ways as you are in life and as you practice. So we need to have sympathetic joy where we have this genuine feeling of joy for others success, even if we didn't contribute to it. So let's just say my son is studying for a spelling test and say I help him every single week to study for his spelling test and he's been getting eights every single time, eight out of ten. He's been getting eight out of ten, eight out of ten. But let's just say one week he happens to study with his mom and he gets a ten out of ten. I shouldn't feel jealous. I, I need to feel joy. I need to feel joy for his success even though I didn't contribute to it because that's his success. And Okay, so what? His mom helped him. Okay, great. He got a 10. Sometimes what the mind can do is kind of feel a little bit envious or jealous or not well because this happened without my input. So we need to have this sympathetic joy regardless of the conditions that created this success, whether we contributed to it or not, just always being joyful for other people's success. And again, the opposite here of sympathetic joy would be jealousy. Okay. The fourth mental state that's part of the Brahma Viharas that we need to cultivate is equanimity. Equanimity kind of has like two parts to it. One part is this mental calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. Okay, so an unfortunate situation happens, you can maintain your mental calmness, your composure, your evenness of temper, even in difficult situations where maybe someone's talking bad to you or maybe your child gets hurt or you get hurt yourself or some unfortunate situation happens, being able to maintain this mental composure, this evenness of temper especially in difficult situations. So this is one component of equanimity, this evenness of temper. And this is why when I describe enlightenment, I describe it as peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Okay, It's that calmness, that steadiness, right? that evenness of temper. This is essentially the middle way, not allowing the mind to dwell in any kind of sadness or frustration or irritation, but also not letting it dwell in excited feelings and elation as well, bringing the mind to the middle with mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, 
especially in difficult situations. Let's say you got a last minute call that your flight was canceled. You've got your bags packed. You're ready to go out the door. The taxi's right there. You're putting your suitcases in the taxi and you get a phone call that your flight's canceled. Sometimes we get really frustrated and angry in the unenlightened state, right? We get bent out of shape. But what you need to practice is calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. So we could talk about a lot of different examples here. But the second part of equanimity is treating everyone impartially, right? Treating everyone equally and fairly and seeing all beings as being equal. How do you treat the street sweeper that sweeps the streets in our village versus the leader of the village? Do you treat those two people differently or do you see them as equal and you treat them equally for all people? Treating all people impartially is very important. It doesn't matter what race they are, what religion they are, what gender they are, what background they're from, what their income is, what their position in society is, looking at all beings as being equal and treating them that way in your daily life and not seeing differences among people, even though other people may see differences in these different people as terms of their position in society, what you need to cultivate and what you need to practice is seeing everyone is equal not just other people, but seeing yourself that way too. Because oftentimes what happens is our ego wants to put us above people, uh, which is dangerous for the mind. Or sometimes, you know, we kind of put ourselves below people. And this is also dangerous for the mind as well. If we consider ourselves lower than other people, it can make us feel sad and frustrated. So in terms of how you look at others, but also how you look at yourself, You need to put yourself on the same plane as everyone and treat everybody as an equal. This is one of the reasons why certain labels and categorizations of people tend to start falling away the more and more you practice these teachings and the more enlightened you become. You don't necessarily see a Mexican person, an African-American person, a Jewish person, a whatever, you know, you just see a person, a human being. You don't necessarily see them as a street sweeper and a leader of the village. You just see them as they're performing a certain role and this person's performing a certain role. They're just different roles in the village. But in terms of who they are as individuals and how we need to treat them, we need to treat them as equal and fair. Sometimes, depending on a certain person's profession, we might look down on another person, right? If we know somebody is a a sex worker, for example, or a drug dealer or something like this, we may look down on them in the unenlightened state and think that they're kind of lower part of society. Well, there are certain situations and certain decisions that were made that those people are performing those certain roles in society. And yes, they're ultimately responsible for all the decisions they made, But sometimes people find themselves in certain situations and it's kind of like they had a choice, but the situation and the circumstances kind of that was kind of their only option. 
so to speak. And I think about this here in Thailand because there's a certain amount of people that are doing sex work in Thailand and those people aren't necessarily bad people. They may have made some bad decisions, but also certain things and certain reasons why they're in that type of work has nothing to do sometimes with the decisions that they've particularly made other than the fact that they were born into this certain family. There's a lot of poverty. Maybe mom and dad or other people are having trouble. Maybe they have poor health. Maybe their husband or wife left them. And this male or female has chosen that in terms of how to put food in their mouth, this is the only option for them that they see as a viable solution at that particular time. But sometimes what happens in the unenlightened state is we see these different roles in society, street sweeper, garbage collector, sex worker, maybe drug dealer, maybe different things. We kind of see these people maybe as lower parts of society and we judge them. But what you need to do is you need to realize that all beings are equal and treat them as equals and really do that through your daily practice. So there's really these two parts to equanimity is one is this mental calmness and composure, evenness of temper, but then equanimity, meaning equal, is treating all beings equally. And even taking this as far as when I'm with my son and there's other children with us, treating my son and other children exactly the same way, right? And doing that easily without thinking about it. It just is the way that it happens is seeing all beings as equal. It doesn't mean we would treat our children one way and everybody else's children some other way, but we would see everybody as equal and equal in society and do that through our speech and our actions, treating all beings equally. So this is equanimity. The opposite of equanimity would be kind of like a person who is uncalm, right? Like someone's mind who gets shaken up very easily, very quickly, you know, kind of disjointed or unstable. And also the opposite of the second aspect is somebody who views people as different levels of society. And I'm going to treat this person one way and I'm going to treat this person another way. Some people treat people in high positions really well and treat people in low positions not well. And then conversely, you've got people who look at people in low positions and treat them very well. And people who are in high positions, they have kind of resentment or anger for them, jealousy, and they treat those people badly. But what we have to do is we have to bring all beings to a level playing field and treat all beings equally. This is really important as part of your practice to attain enlightenment. Questions on any of these four Brahma Viharas? Yes, so we have a couple of questions on equanimity and also some questions on compassion. So uh, I want to clarify something on equanimity here. So these two different components to it, it seems, one being a kind of impartiality to situations and the evenness of temper that comes from that. And I suppose with that, I would lump in this... um, lack of a tendency to chase after things but at the same time not to be troubled by unpleasant things and then the second component would be treating everyone every individual impartially are these coming from the same part of the mind 
the part of the mind that is just impartial to the pleasant and the unpleasant? Or, or is it best to see these as two different functions that are going on? I think of them as, you know, two different things. I mean, it's all part of equanimity, but, you know, how you look at it, whether you look at it as two parts or one part, up to you. But it's all comes back to equanimity and evenness, evenness. So one is evenness of temper, and another one is evenness in terms of how you treat people and treating people impartially and fairly. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I've sometimes heard the word equanimity described in relation to meditation itself as being a result of meditation deep meditation uh, i don't know if that if that's part of the same thing we're I mean, discussing here c- certainly when you meditate you tend to bring the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation you tend to bring the mind to the middle right because that's essentially what equanimity is is bringing the mind to the middle back to chapter six when we talked about the middle way is bringing the mind to the middle and then maintaining that in your daily life. An example of something that happened to me a few months ago, I had a family with me, a students with me, and we went with my son and their children to a rollerblading place. And my son took a really bad spill and he wasn't wearing a helmet and he took a really hard hit and they came and got me and said, hey, your son is laying on the floor like he's not getting up. And I just calmly stood up and walked over there and said hey Bailan what's going on did you fall down and he's like yeah I did and I can't get up my head really hurts dad so we just kind of calmly talked about the situation and then eventually when we got out to the car you know it was obvious that his head was hurting pretty bad and after I dropped off this family he started vomiting okay this is probably a concussion and I took him to the hospital and got him checked out Now, in that situation, being able to maintain equanimity or this mental calmness and composure, this evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation, it's really beneficial because what could have happened in that situation is if I wasn't practicing equanimity, I could have gotten, oh my God, my son fell down, he's vomiting, oh my God, where do I go? And I could have gotten really hectic in my driving and we might have actually gotten a car accident and made the situation worse Um, or when we got to the hospital I might have been kind of been out of shape and not been able to explain to the nurses and the doctors of what happened and maybe he wouldn't have gotten the care because they didn't have the information that they needed to really look at the situation in the best way so where you benefit here by practicing equanimity is by maintaining your mental calmness and composure, especially in difficult situations, you're able to handle that situation very well. Whether it's an example like this where my son fell down and had a concussion and needed to go to the hospital, or even in a situation where say you're in a business environment and you're standing up and you're giving a presentation and maybe somebody takes exception with what you're presenting in business and starts kind of being hostile with you, if you allow the mind to become uncalm and you lose your composure, then you're not able to perform in that situation to the best of your ability and have the best impact or the best result. So by learning how to practice equanimity in your personal life and in your professional life, you'll see that you'll be able to make better decisions and you'll be able to create better results for yourself whether that's in a personal setting or a professional setting. 
and by treating all people fairly and impartially, you'll find that people will be more helpful and they'll kind of rally around you as you need help. If you're looking at all people as equal and you're not looking down on people, then all people will be there to help you. And conversely, is if you don't look at yourself as below others and you look at yourself as equal with everybody, then you'll be more readily able to talk to other people who you maybe now consider them above you and maybe you get kind of shy or you get hesitant or you can't really put a few words together when you're talking to this person because you view them as so high and above you. If you look at everybody as equals, then now you're just having a conversation with another person who's an equal and you're not kind of viewing people as above or below you. And you'll find that your decisions and your speech and your actions will be more conducive to healthy relationships, both personally and professionally. Got it. Thanks, David. Okay, so we have a question from Amina, also on equanimity. Amina asks, what about if we can stay composed in a situation, but then later on we actually feel bad? So, for example, when Amina has lunch with her in-laws, after 18 years of knowing them, they still put her down for not eating meat when they're all together. Amina says, I'm calm in the moment and I am kind with them, but often after the meal, I have feelings about it. Mm-hmm. I guess wishing they would understand. Mm-hmm. So I am composed in the situation, but I want to work on being free of having hurt feelings afterwards, as it is a pattern that after two decades seems to continue on their part. And I have explained why I choose to be vegetarian. Okay, there's two different things going on here. It's great that she's practicing equanimity during the moment, right? Because that's a difficult situation. You would like to have your in-laws understand you and appreciate you and have a good open relationship. So that's a, a, a good genuine interest to have. So practicing equanimity where you're practicing the mental calmness and composure, evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation, it sounds like you've got that one. But what's happening is later your attachment, your craving, your desire to have this pleasing relationship that's always pleasant with your in-laws is what's causing the frustration or irritation or whatever feelings that are coming up afterwards. So you're practicing equanimity, it sounds like, because when they ask you, why aren't you eating meat? You're just, you're not blowing up and being, what are you talking about eating meat? Why don't you always keep doing this to me? Like I've told you 18 years now, I don't eat meat, right? Like that would be the opposite of equanimity, right? So it sounds like you're maintaining your equanimity, but what's happening is your attachment, expecting and craving for your in-laws to recognize what's going on and understand that and practice in a certain way, that's what's causing the mind to be discontent afterwards. So you're practicing equanimity, it sounds like, but it's the attachment and the craving that's causing the mind to be discontent. I feel like equanimity comes hand in hand with mindfulness. Uh, And so when we happen to be very, very mindful, it can sometimes feel like both the pleasant and the unpleasant are just, like they're just slipping away. It comes in, it goes out. It comes in, it goes out. It's just not even, there's just no time even for the mind to attach to either. Do you consider them as quite closely related? 
Um, mindfulness is awareness of mind, right? Having awareness of the mind and knowing the condition of the mind at every moment. Equanimity is different. Equanimity is a practice of calmness and composure and evenness of temper. And, and this says especially in difficult situations because let's say, let's use me, Amina since she's given her example and everybody knows what that is. Let's just say Amina goes to lunch tomorrow with her in-laws and all of a sudden when they sit down, they're just like, Amina, I'm so happy you don't eat meat and I, I love the fact that you don't eat meat, right? Amina's mind could oh my God, are you, are you serious? Like, that's so great. I love the fact that you're doing that. Oh, wow. Like the mind can get really excited in the pleasant feelings because of this craving and this desire. The, the pleasant feelings can really come in strongly. And conversely, if she sits down with them again and they once again start talking about the meat, the mind could be angry or frustrated. And what equanimity is, is no matter whether it's a pleasing or pleasant situation or whether it's an unpleasant and displeasing situation the mind's maintaining its mental composure it's in the middle and always bringing the mind back to the middle so the mind can actually go in either direction with the pleasant feelings or the painful feelings it can lead us away from that middle and what this practice of equanimity is, is bringing the mind right to the middle and maintaining it there. And you're probably not being able to do that 24 hours, seven days a week now, but the goal is, is now that you're aware of equanimity, is just always bringing the mind back. And the more and more that you do that, and the more comfortable you get with the mind being in the middle, the more easily you will be able to do that. Right now, maybe it's not easy, but the more you practice it, the more you understand it, it'll get easier and easier to bring the mind to the middle and keep it there. But equanimity and mindfulness are two different things, Max. You, you, need, you need to have mindfulness, awareness of mind, in order to practice equanimity. Because if you didn't have awareness of mind, you wouldn't be able to practice equanimity because you wouldn't even know where the mind is. You wouldn't know whether it's happy, whether it's sad, whether it's joyful, whether it's pleasant, no matter where it is. If you didn't have mindfulness, you wouldn't even be able to get to equanimity. So that's why mindfulness is one of the major steps on the Eightfold Path, is developing that awareness of mind, because it's a precursor to pretty much everything else. Got it. Thanks. Makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I suggest we move into some questions on compassion now. We have a question from Masia on Zoom. Masia asks, I have extreme compassion for the plight of animals and I get so sickened by the cruelty to animals. This upsets and worries me for days. How can I deal with these feelings? Okay, this is a good topic. I was hoping somebody would have questions along this line. So as you're learning and practicing this path, what's going to happen is this loving kindness, this compassion, these other things are going to start rising up more and more. And as they do, and there's still craving, there's still desire, there's still attachment, there's still this mental longing with a strong eagerness. What can happen is the mind now craves for all of these animals to be taken care of really well. And when you see that animals aren't being taken care of well, the mind can be sad, frustrated, discontent. 
And that's coming from the craving, the desire, the attachments. And this is why I talk about the Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong, because it's a really good, nice quality of mind to have compassion for all animals and have a genuine concern for the misfortune of animals. But where you run into problems is when that compassion comes up so highly, when they're still craving there, and this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, now the mind wants this really good thing. They, the mind wants everybody to be compassionate, and it expects everybody to be compassionate. Now the mind becomes discontent because of that. So with all of these things, this is why I feel that equanimity is probably is at the end here, is that with loving kindness and compassion, you need to bring it into the middle. You need to bring it into the middle. You need to maintain this, this concern for the misfortune of the animals, but you can't have so much concern with craving that it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. So you have to bring that to the middle. Got it. And in fact, before the class today, we were talking with Bill and, and Bill asked about how to show appropriate compassion. And I think often, especially recently with the virus, we see a lot of really uh, effusive compassion, a lot of uh, um, a lot of feeling sorry for each other, this kind of thing. So can you maybe talk a bit about when compassion can go too far, if it can go too far, and maybe fall into the territory of actually doing more harm than good? Yeah, one of the things that I see with these loving kindness and compassion is oftentimes because of our Western culture, we're oftentimes taught to put other people first where we tend to be taught that and that we feel that if we do things for ourselves, that that's selfish right and this is where we have to find the middle with these things because what can oftentimes happen that i see is as people are learning the buddhist teachings and you're learning about what's causing the discontent mind you're learning about the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts, all of these things, the loving kindness and compassion is going up. The more you understand the Buddhist teachings, the more you're going to see how discontent the world is. You're going to see how much misery there really is in the world and how much discontentness there is. And the loving kindness and compassion can be rising up more and more and more. And one of the the feelings that sometimes comes up is we want to kind of run out and help a lot of other people. And we sometimes put ourselves on the back burner. And this is one of the problems that can happen when there's too much loving kindness and too much compassion is we feel like we just want to help everybody else rather than focusing where we're really going to get the most benefit, which is focusing on yourself first. This is not selfish to focus on yourself first. And this is why in loving kindness meditation, we always cultivate loving kindness for ourselves first. So you have to have loving kindness for yourself first, and you have to have compassion for yourself first and work on your own practice and realize that if you're not working to your own betterment, if you're not working to evolve your own mind, then you can't do anything good for anybody else. So you have to work on your own self first. You have to develop loving kindness and compassion for yourself. And then when it's appropriate and people ask questions and people are interested to maybe understand why your life is improving so much, 
then you can share with them. So where loving kindness and compassion oftentimes goes wrong is we feel like we want to run out and help everybody else when in reality they don't want they don't want help. They, they may even say they want help, but then when you start talking, you start sharing, they pretty much cut it off because what you're sharing with them is so opposite of what they've learned in the past that they just have no interest and really a, a true genuine interest in talking and having conversation and truly understanding what it is you have to share with them. And you have to recognize that if you have awareness of mind and you see that someone else is kind of resistant, then there's no sense of trying to push through that wall. You know, you can offer little suggestions here and there, but if you get resistance, it doesn't matter how much loving kindness and compassion you have. It doesn't matter how enlightened you are and how much you see that other people are suffering or having discontentness of mind, and you have the solutions and you have the answers to their problems, it doesn't matter how much you know you have the answers to their problems. If that person isn't interested and open to a discussion and learning, there's nothing you're gonna be able to help this person and benefit them. So sometimes what can happen is there's so much loving kindness and compassion that people start pushing and being forceful with others. And even, you know, I know Amina has a child and our children are almost the same age. Sometimes we see our children headed for a bad situation and we know it's going to turn out badly. And because of our loving kindness and because of our compassion, we don't want to see this other person be harmed based on their own decisions. And we can see it clear as day, but they can't. And even if we try to probably provide them some advice and guidance to make sure this bad event doesn't happen, they're not interested in it. And in some situations, it's better to just let them experience the bad situation. Sometimes it's better to let them touch the hot stove so they realize it's hot and they don't ever touch it again. Because it doesn't matter how much you sit there and tell them that it's a hot stove, don't touch it, they're eventually going to touch it and they have to feel the heat. But with loving kindness and compassion, sometimes there's so much there, we're not in the middle that we try to stand in the way in our craving, our longing, our desires, our strong eagerness tends to make it difficult for us to practice it by being in the middle. Our loving kindness and compassion comes up so strong that sometimes we step in the way and we try to block something bad from happening to somebody and because of our craving, our strong longing, our eagerness in the unenlightened state, we try to block people because we don't want bad things to happen to them. But in reality, that causes conflict and discontentedness when in fact, sometimes the most loving, kind and compassionate thing you can do is just get out of the way and let them touch the hot stove. And then they got it. And that's sometimes the most loving and compassionate thing you can do. Now, of course, if my son's going to step in the middle of the street and get hit by a car, you know, of course, I'm going to grab his hand and pull him back. But there are certain things in life where we tend to try to shelter people. And one of the things that we have to understand that part of loving kindness and compassion is letting all people make their own decisions in life and not trying to influence or persuade or force somebody to do something that we think is going to be good for their life, we need to allow all beings to have free will and to make their own choices. 
and just allow it to be, that's sometimes the most loving, kind, and compassionate thing you could ever do for somebody. And then let them learn based on the decisions that they're making. Say if someone was coming to you with a, with a problem, as I know they do frequently in your case, David, and um, how would you approach the, the commiseration? Would you, would you um, suggest, suggest commiserating at all or just being very equanimous? Yeah, I mean, you have to practice equanimity because if, if I commiserate, if I kind of come to where they are and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, that's really bad. I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, I wish that wouldn't have happened. Now, my craving, my longing, my this strong eagerness is kind of going down into their level where they're at and therefore I can't bring them out of that, right? Like if they're down into some dark moments, if I go down there with them, it doesn't serve them or me any good. But by me having equanimity without craving, without desire, without this strong longing and attachment, realizing that their situation is impermanent, whatever they're having a bad experience about, if I kind of keep my mind in a good place, then I can reach out a hand and help lead them out, right? I'm thinking of like, if somebody fell into the deep end of a pool, I'm most likely not going to just jump in the pool and try to save them because they might pull me under with them. I'm probably going to stand on the side and reach out a hand. You know, I'm going to stay on good footing and try to pull them into good, stable ground. Or if I have a rope or a big tree or whatever, I'm going to use all those things first. But by commiserating with them and, you know, oh, I'm so sorry that this happened. It's really bad. It's really unfortunate. Oftentimes we think that that's showing compassion. We think that by commiserating with them, that that's how you show compassion is show them that you're in touch with their feelings. You're right there with them. You're feeling every feeling that they're feeling. And for me, that's not compassion. For me, that's just bringing your mind to an unhealthy state. I can feel concern for someone's misfortune without being hopeless and commiserating with them. I can still have concern for them. In fact, I can have even more concern and I can help them better if I maintain these four mental states without craving, without desire, without attachment and help guide somebody to a better position. But ultimately, they're the ones that have to make the choice. So that's why in any one given situation, again, one of the ways to show loving kindness and compassion is not to tell somebody what to do. I never give somebody an answer. I never tell them what to do. Because we have to come up with these solutions for ourselves. If we're practicing the Eightfold Path, the entire Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration with the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts, all the other things, eliminating the three poisons of craving, anger, and delusion or ignorance. If we're practicing these four Brahma Viharas, then our mind is protected and we're in a better position to actually help this person than if we are trying to force our way or influence our way and trying to get this other person to do things that we think is in their best interest. If we're really practicing these teachings well, we wouldn't have any interest in making decisions for anybody 
because if I make a decision for you, Max, and I try to force you to or influence you to make the decision based on what I think is good for you, then when you make that decision, if it turns out good or bad, it's really a decision that came from me. And you made the decision, you did what I said, but if it turns out bad, you know, that's gamma that you're experiencing based on my forcefulness. You have to have the freedom to make all the decisions in your own life yourself and experience the good and the bad. And based on those decisions that you make, if good things happen for you, then you'll see that, you'll learn from that, you'll realize that you made some good decisions and that will make you more wise and more intelligent and it will help you to continue to make those good decisions. And conversely, if you make decisions that lead to bad results, then you'll learn that too. But if I give you a decision and you implement it, you haven't really learned anything. It's kind of like, you know, you can catch a fish and feed a person for a day, or you can teach them how to fish, and then they can feed themselves for the rest of their life. Just an analogy. I don't recommend going out and fishing, <laughs> but if you want to, you can. It's up to you. But just an analogy. So the goal of practice when you're trying to have loving kindness and compassion for people is not to give them the answer and try to influence and force them to do what you think is right for them, but to share some guidance with them, share some suggestions with them, and then allow them to find what might work for them. And this happened with Bill as he has his hand up. This happened with Bill right before class. He said, David, how would you show somebody care and concern when they have some unfortunate event happen to them. And the first thing I said is, well, how would you do it, Bill? And then he came up with a solution. Uh, he came up with an idea of what he would do. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Rather than me saying, oh, I do this. You got to do it like this, Bill. And if you do it like this, this is the right way, right? This is ego. This is my craving. This is this desire, this attachment, strong eagerness if I did it that way. But what we need to do, not just as a teacher, but as a brother, as a life partner, as a son, as a daughter, as a parent, we need to provide guidance and advice, but be unattached with how the person actually makes the decision and just kind of maybe ask questions that the person maybe isn't asking themselves because we can all find the answers to our common problems in life. These teachings of the Buddha, you need guidance, you need to learn them, you need to see that they're truth for yourself. But once you learn these and you're practicing the Eightfold Path and you're practicing these four mental states of the Brahma Viharas, you will find the answers in life. That's why the Buddha never said, you know, if your husband cheats on you, do this. You know, if your boss steals money from you, do this, right? He never gave that kind of guidance. He's always teaching how to train the mind so that each person can come up with their own decisions of how they choose to implement these teachings in their daily life. And that, I think, is one of the most loving, kind, and compassionate things you can do is not try to force your way or influence your way and allow all beings to just come up with their own decisions. And if somebody asks you for help, provide it to them, but don't try to force it or impress it on them. Yes, okay. Great. Well, I suggest we go to Bill, who has his hand up, and then we'll go to Uma on Facebook. So, Bill, I'm going to unmute you, and over to you. Thank you. 
Um, so I think this falls under compassion. Um, I had a situation happen today um, as is happening all around the world with people not having access to their job anymore. There's a lot of um, food, uh, you know, hungry people. Um, and so I, I know this couple that own a restaurant around the corner from where I live. Um, I'm also involved in uh, the International Rotary Club here in Shanghai. So um, we, we were looking at, at programs that were helping to feed people who, who needed food. And uh, I was very, very pleased to find out that uh, the restaurant around the corner, Kitchen 7, um, the couple that owned the restaurant were um, spending their own, you know, struggling themselves and then still finding a way to um, do a Sunday afternoon feeding for a uh, hundred people. And um, so our Rotary Club has been reimbursing them for the expenses. And um, Kratai, the lady uh, of the couple that owns the restaurant, she asked me if I would come today and help out. And I was glad to do that. Um, but I was, you know, and I was, very happy, you know, that the community, you know, these are the kinds of things that that we like to see in a, in, in a stressful time. We like to see people step up and, and be compassionate and um, and help help the, the, the people that need help. So uh, what I didn't expect was that there would be a hundred and first person. There were there were about 120 people. 125 people that showed up. I was not ready for that first person to come. Uh, I was handing out juices. So they had a meal, they had juice, they had uh, vegetables and one other item. Um, and so my, my, my mind quickly went, um, this is great. You know, I, I love that Kretai and Joe are doing this. This is, a wonderful thing, and then I was not ready for the discontented, you know, mind to follow to happen so quickly, mm -hmm. you know. And, and eventually, I recovered, and I and I came back to the middle way, um, as as I'm learning to do through through David's teachings. Um, but it was it was a situation where I I I, I went from here. And I sunk very low. Yeah. Uh, and it, but eventually I, I, I did, you know, I, I, you know, food isn't permanent. You know, supplies are impermanent. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm that I'm learning that from from your teachings, David. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, but I, I just thought I would share that as an experience. Um, so you saw this as your craving, your desire, your attachment, your mental longing and strong eagerness to help people. You know, you were you had a certain expectation and expectations are part of that craving, desire, attachment. If you have expectations, very rarely are they necessarily always going to be met. So that's why entering in that situation when the hundred and first person came up 
boom, the mind became discontent because there was craving, desire, attachment, this strong eagerness or this longing. So it's best to just show up and, you know, maybe there's 80 people, maybe there's 120 people, have no expectation at all. I'm just here in the moment right now to help and whatever happens, happens. And this is where, back to Max's one question about where loving kindness and compassion can go wrong, is in this situation, Bill is having you know lots of loving kindness and compassion, but because there was so much there, when he realized he couldn't help the other 20 people, that's when the mind became discontent. And that's where we have to bring it to the middle, as Bill sounds like he was able to do. If you're able to get there, and stay there all the time, you you won't even experience that discontentness at all, ever. But you have to go through enough of these situations where you observe it and you see it and you realize that your expectation, your craving, your desire, your attachment is what caused that discontentness and not feel guilty and not feel shameful and not feel like you did anything wrong, but you just recognize it. Wow, the Buddhist teachings are real. Look at this. My mind's frustrated. My mind's discontent when uh, I'm just standing here trying to help people. And that's where you can see that the Buddhist teachings, again, aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong, because it's a very good feeling to have that loving kindness and compassion to help people. But if you aren't practicing the middle way, it's going to lead to discontentness. And you can see, wow, his teachings are so true. And that can help you erode one of those fetters, which is doubt about the teachings, the second fetter. The more and more you see his teachings are real and true, you can start to erode that more and more and more and get rid of if there's any doubt that's there. So thanks for sharing that example, Bill, to help people see it more. If I can use Bill's example and kind of modify it a bit to illustrate something I was talking about earlier. So let's say, you know, Bill's part of this rotary club and he's close to this restaurant and this Rotary Club is helping the restaurant to facilitate this sharing of food. Now, let's say in this situation where Bill's asked to come help and Bill really isn't feeling good about going to help and he really has to take care of some things on his own, but he goes anyway and helps out anyway, right? Putting everybody else first. He didn't do this, but let's just say that's what he did right? This is where we can run into problems, that if we show loving kindness and compassion to others, but inside we know that we're not feeling well, we're not feeling good, but we try to extend ourselves, and we're longing and we're craving to show loving kindness and compassion so much that we neglect our own well-being, then this can run into problems as well. So let's just say if that was the situation, what the mind needs to recognize is there'll be another chance to show loving kindness and compassion. Right now, in this moment, this mind needs to stay inside. I need to do this or that, or I need to take care of this, or I need to take care of that, and find a way to say, you know, I'm not able to come, but maybe I'll be able to come in the future. And not feeling guilty or shameful that you've turned down this invite to come help and feel like, oh gosh, I didn't show loving kindness, I didn't show compassion, right? And kind of beat yourself up and feel shameful or guilty about it. What you've got to do is you've got to be whole first. You have to have loving kindness and compassion for yourself first before you're able to practice it 
with other people. Because in this situation, if Bill or had gone out and we weren't feeling well, we weren't taking care of ourselves for one reason or another, and we chose to show loving kindness, compassion to everybody else in that situation, maybe bad things would have happened because I'm not feeling up to to being in that situation. So this is where mindfulness comes in and having awareness of mind and feeling okay with turning down an invite if that's what you need to do in order to maintain your own wellness. And this is what we call protecting your own contentedness, right? You have to protect your own contentedness. So I kind of modified Bill's example here just because you guys were familiar with his example and you heard me talking about, you know, you have to navigate not being selfish and always doing things in a selfish way, but also being able to practice loving kindness and compassion in certain situations that you need to do that in. And Bill's talking about a really big situation where he's volunteering his time and his money and his effort to go do this. But sometimes, like I said, some of the easiest ways to show loving kindness and compassion is just not to force your views and opinions on other people and just letting people make their own free will choices. So you have to find this middle with all of this, with loving kindness and compassion. Whereas if you're too selfish and just focused on yourself always, that's going to lead to problems. And if you give too much to everybody else and you're always focused on everyone else, that's going to cause problems as well. So you have to find that middle and then you have to understand that that middle is impermanent and it's always going to be changing. And that's where awareness of mind comes in and you have to be able to just walk the middle way. And it takes practice. It takes time to really navigate that and find it and be comfortable in that. We have a question from Uma on Facebook, also on compassion. Uma asks, recently my brother-in-law passed away. His wife died two years ago. They have a daughter who is 11 years old. After listening to your talk, now I feel I should have taken the lead to take care of the daughter. I was initially hesitant to take care of her when I thought there are many other family members. And now I feel I have compassion to bring her up as my daughter. Now I feel to have compassion is to bring her up as my daughter. Who also says that his in-laws are also taking care of, of the daughter at this time. Yeah, however you choose to do that, you know, it's completely your choice. And if you feel like that's where you are at this moment, maybe you weren't there in the past uh, when your brother and his wife passed away. If you feel like that's where you are now, then then that's that's good for you. But if, if you're not there, then that's okay too. Because if you need to take care of yourself, the immediate people around you, and you don't have the ability and the capacity to take on helping somebody else, then that's okay, right? Loving kindness and compassion doesn't mean that we have to help every single person in every situation. It's not even always about necessarily helping other people. It doesn't mean we have to run out and save the world. That's not what loving kindness and compassion is. It's nice to hear that you feel that you are able to help your niece here, it sounds like. And if that's what you choose to do, that's great. But don't feel that this loving kindness and compassion means that we have to go out and save the world and fix every wrong. That's not what loving kindness and compassion necessarily is. It's finding that middle 
where you have loving kindness compassion for yourself but then also for every being around you and it doesn't always mean that you have the ability to either take the time effort or use the financial resources to help somebody in a given situation sometimes having loving kindness and compassion is you see somebody sitting on the side of the road that has no money and isn't able to feed themselves and you just smile at them that can be an act of loving kindness and compassion too. Some of the things that we're talking about are, are big acts of loving kindness and compassion where Bill's going to help people that aren't able to afford food, where Uma's interested in taking care of her niece whose parents have passed away. These, these are big you know, decisions that we need to make in life and taking the time to think them through and making sure that this is the best decision for our life and for the other people around us, that's okay. But don't feel like these four mental states, particularly loving kindness and compassion, means we have to go out and make a bunch of decisions to right all these wrongs and fix all these situations. We have a question from James on Zoom. James asks, if we see a person not on the path, continually making decisions leading to suffering, is the most compassionate, skillful way to respond simply through the example of our own practice? There's lots of different answers, right? Like this is where I talk about there's always 10 million right answers and there's maybe like 1 million wrong answers. If that's the way that James, you choose to practice in this situation, yeah, that's, that's great. You know, having your own practice and practicing in your own way, that's wonderful. And that's a right answer. And there's 9,900,099 more right answers, you know, and that's where I think the Buddha did us all a really good service that instead of telling us what to do in every situation with this big decision tree, he taught certain qualities of mind that we need to eliminate and certain qualities of mind to cultivate. And having done that and in the process of doing that, you will figure out what's the right answers in any given situation. And what you just said sounds like a perfectly good answer to me. And it's a really good question, a really good mm-hmm. point as well. Uh, I sometimes feel that when we're not sure in an interpersonal situation, whether it is uh, helping someone who doesn't appear to help, be interested in helping themselves, or whether it's some kind of conflict, there is no hard and fast do this answer. However, mm-hmm compassion will usually tell us everything we need to know if we're not sure it sometimes can come from the fact that maybe we're not fully cultivating compassion and when we do usually the answers just come i I find sometimes i think it's almost more beneficial to talk about the wrong answer right so like the wrong answer in james situation when there's somebody that you see that you feel is their decisions are leading to discontentness the wrong answer would be to rush in there and try to force them to do things your way because what we perceive as they're headed for bad times might be exactly what they need to learn all the lessons that they've been missing for the last five or ten years so the wrong answer would be to rush in there try to fix the situation and feel like we have the answers that would be kind of responding with ego and craving. So that would be the wrong answer is to rush in there, try to influence them, sit them down. Oh, you've got to do it this way. You've got to do it that way. And you're headed for this problem and that problem. And why would you do it this way? And why would you do it that way? Um, 
you know, I'm assuming that this person is maybe a friend or an adult family member or a coworker or something like that. That would be the wrong answer. Now, if it's a child and you're parenting the child, the Buddha did say that as parents, we should attempt to restrain our child from evil. Okay. He actually gave a teaching. It's called ministering in the six directions. And he talked about various relationships that we have in our life, like bosses, children, life partners, our parents. He talked about aesthetics. He talked about different groups of people. And there are six groups of people. And he said, these are the type of things that we should do for these various people. And if we do these things for these various people, then they will reciprocate in these ways. So if this was a child of yours, James, if you have children, I'm not sure if you do or not, and you saw them headed for something significantly bad, the Buddha does give teachings that says we should attempt to teach our children and essentially restrain them from evil and through, you know, education and through helping them to understand life better. But aside from that, you know, I can see sitting down a child and saying, okay, you know, you haven't been doing your homework. You are getting bad grades. If this continues, you're not going to be able to complete school and have a good outcome for potential options to go to college if that's something you want to do and ultimately have a good job, this is going to lead to bad things, right? As a six or eight or 12-year-old child or however old a child is, yes, sitting them down and helping them to see how their unwise choices are going to lead to unwise results. That's something that we should do as parents. But if this is a friend or a colleague or an adult family member, we know the wrong thing to do would be to rush in there sit them down and try to, you know, dictate to them what they should and shouldn't do. Because in those situations, sometimes that's exactly what they need to learn the lessons. No matter how much you try to talk to them and try to convince them, you may actually be wrong too, right? Because like we might think they're going for something that's unhelpful for them, but it might be exactly what they need. Because maybe James, in your situation, if you've encountered certain problems and you know the answers to those things, you figured out those answers because you encountered those bad times. And that's how you got that wisdom to figure that out. And they need to have similar experiences to get that real world experience. So they have just as much wisdom as you in that given topic, no matter how much wisdom you try to give them ahead of the curve in order to have them avoid the situation, it may or may not help them. And we may be perceiving the situation is wrong. So I think the solution that you've come up with, I think that sounds very reasonable and very healthy for you because you're not having craving to run off and go help this person. You're protecting your own contentedness. And then ultimately they will learn if they make any mistakes or they make any decisions that lead to unwholesome results, they will learn from that and that will be good for their life. So yeah, I think your decision sounds, sounds very wise. Yeah, it can be difficult, um, you know, as you're learning the teachings and you see people close to you that um, are making decisions that may not, uh, that, you, that you know are going to lead to suffering. Um, so there can be an inclination to, you know, interject, but 
I know based on um, teachings that that's not exactly the, the wise decision. So, um, so yeah, I was just looking for, you know, kind of clarification about that. Yeah, one of the things I've told students for many years is the more you practice these teachings and the more your mind awakens, the more you're going to observe how much discontentness there is in the world and among the people around you. And that's actually going to require you to practice the teachings even more, right? Because as the loving kindness and compassion comes up, they're still craving there and you want to help this person because you see the problems and, and you just have this interest to really help them because of the loving kindness and compassion and they're still craving there. So the more you're aware of these teachings, the more awake the mind becomes, you're going to just see countless problems everywhere. And you have the solutions to them because you've you know, evolved and your mind is, is more awake. But the more awake you become, the more problems you're going to see. And you don't have enough time in your day to help all of these different situations. And those people aren't necessarily receptive to you anyway. So the more problems that you see, the more you're going to have to practice these teachings to eliminate that craving, eliminate that desire, attachment, and bring the mind to the middle with loving kindness and compassion. Right? So yeah, the more, the more you practice, the more you're going to need to practice because you're going to become so aware of the problems. One of the things the Buddha talks about in the jhanas is he talks about fretting about the world. He says that we need to eliminate our fretting about the world. It's like our complaining about the world or our, our worry about the world. The more enlightened we become, the more you maybe get into the jhanas or the first or second stage of enlightenment, you'll see more and more of these problems and what the mind wants to do because there's loving kindness and compassion is help all of these people. But in doing so, it actually pulls back and puts the brakes on your own progress because you're, you're, you still have the craving to help all these other people instead of just continuing to pursue and continuing the path to actually get to complete enlightenment, you can actually stall out your progress. So he talks about eliminating fretting about the world, which is like worrying about the world. Because if we worry about the world, all these problems that we see in the world, and we're just going around trying to fix the world's problems, then we're not fixing the problem that's in our mind, which is the craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. So we have to be aware we need to practice loving kindness, which is active goodwill. We need to practice this compassion or this concern for misfortune. We need to have this sympathetic joy where we see joy in other people's success. We need to practice this equanimity where we bring the mind to calmness and evenness, where we treat everyone equally. But we need to always stay focused on what's the number one goal of this life, which is to reach enlightenment, to learn and practice and continue all the way forward. So if we just fret about the world or we worry about the world, that we're leaving the world behind, then there's still attachment there and we're not letting go. We still have this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness for the world and for the world's problems. We need to ascend beyond the world's problems. And then having done that, then you're in the best position to actually help other people around you. Say if you attain enlightenment 
and you, instead of being stalled and putting on the brakes for the world and so much worry about the world, instead of allowing that to stall your progress, if you keep on going and keep on pursuing as you talked about, then should you someday attain enlightenment, you'd be in the very best position to help all of those people. And they will see that your life has improved and that you're never discontent and you'll be in the very best position to help everybody around us. Where sometimes if we put the brakes on and we try to help all the people, we don't really have all the answers to all the problems. So we're not really in the best position to actually help people. This might be a, a good time to talk about worry versus concern as well. So a worried mind is going to see all the problems in the world and it's going to be discontent because the mind is worried. It sees all the problems. The mind is worried. A concerned mind sees all the problems, but it also has the solution as well. It knows the solution. So it sounds like James is concerned about these other people in that he's observing, and he's trying to get closer and closer to that concern. Whereas if we allow our mind to stay in the worried state, then we just see all the problems, and we just worry and worry and worry, and the mind is discontent. Whereas if we move that to a concern, which is concern for others' misfortune, then we see the problems, we know the solutions, but other people may not be open to those solutions, and therefore it doesn't make sense for us to force it upon them. So it's good to have concern. Worry, the mind's going to still be discontent. But if we move that to concern, then the mind can be content. I suppose, David, the same would apply to issues of, say, activism. I remember you once saying to me that uh, Buddha's teachings and environmental awareness are very compatible. But what about environmental activism or social activism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? Like sometimes we have people that have no care in the world about what goes on in the world and they're just in their own little world and they're very you know, could be potentially be selfish. And that's detrimental to society. And then you've got people who are so adamantly opposed to certain things in the world that they may pursue activism in a very aggressive and hostile way, maybe even rioting or, you know, doing some really harmful things in the world, right? I remember back when people first started not particularly liking people wearing fur coats, I remember people that took like gallons of paint that would damage the fur coat and dump it on people, right? Like this could be like a real fierce activism, right? So this is like two sides of the spectrum. What we need to do if we would like to see the world improve is, is find that middle, that we see problems in the world. We know that these problems exist and how do we bring the activism to the middle where we can influence change and improve the condition of the world, where we're not so self-absorbed, where we're not engaged at all, but we're also not so engaged and so much craving that our mind becomes angry and frustrated to the point where we do harmful things and actually make the situation worse. And then people don't really listen to the cause and aren't influenced by the cause because there's such harmful actions being taken to try to 
forcefully influence people to see it our way. We have to realize that the whole world needs to gradually awaken the mind. Just like each individual needs to gradually awaken the mind to enlightenment, the whole world needs to gradually evolve slowly over time. And just because one person feels or a group of people feel that animal products for a coat is wrong and this group of people have evolved their mind to there, if the mind craves for everybody else to be there as well, then there might be harmful actions that are taken. So we've got to understand that the whole world needs to evolve gradually and slowly and not expect everybody to be at the same place where we are on every single issue. So we can be activists and we can actively pursue better wholesome things to progress the world in a beneficial direction, but doing that from the middle where we're not just completely self-absorbed, but we're not craving this change so badly that we make bad decisions along the way, but we make good wholesome decisions that slowly help to awaken people to this better way of being if we choose that there's a certain aspect of society that we need to influence and improve. Yes, I suppose the only reason we have activism is because it, it is there to attempt to resolve problems that have come about as a result of greed or craving, mm-hmm. problems that have maybe even come about as a result of anger, and certainly problems that have come about as a result of the unknowing of true reality. But if we then engage in activism with those same qualities, we're not really resolving the deeper issues. Mm-hmm. We're fighting fire with fire. Yeah, all of the Buddhist teachings, whether it's the Eightfold Path or these four Brahma Viharas or you know, the five precepts and all of these different things that we learn. I think about the old system of an equalizer. And for some of you guys that are familiar with audio equipment, you know, like an equalizer has all these individual kind of switches that go up and down. And there's kind of like a middle and then there's a high side and then there's a low side. Essentially, whether it's right view all the way through to right concentration, you know, these eight dials, whether it's these four Brahma Viharas and all these other things, what happens is we're trying to dial that stuff in and bring it all to the middle. And what happens is, you know, like maybe five, 10 years ago, maybe you had no loving kindness or or no compassion. And this dial was very low, right? But then as you learn the Buddhist teachings, it comes up and up and up and up and boom, it overshoots the middle. And now it's too high. And now you've got to bring it down a little bit lower. And now it overshoots the middle again, and it goes too low. And you're kind of refining and bringing to the middle right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, the five precepts, all of these things. You're just trying to work on these equalizers all at the same time and you're trying to find that perfect sound right? That's the middle. That's what the Buddha talked about with the instrument, tuning the strings, right? Bringing the mind to the middle. So you can think of all these teachings of the Buddha as being this equalizer, and you're just constantly tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. And as soon as you get it where it feels like, all right, this feels pretty good, then something changes because of impermanence. Now you got to kind of tweak them again. And by doing all that tweaking, By having the awareness of mind, the mindfulness, and doing all this tweaking, 
over a period of months and years, you get better and better about understanding the mind and all these various teachings that with the mind being in the present moment, you can just very easily make decisions and you can, oh, that one's okay. Let me adjust that. Let me adjust that. Where now you're like, hmm, something's going on in my life. What do I need to look at? Is it the three poisons? Is it the five precepts? Is it the Eightfold Path? Oh, you know what? It's right speech. That's what went wrong. Let me adjust that one a little bit. And it takes you some time to reflect because you're just learning the teachings. But the more that you do this over multiple months and multiple years, that as soon as something happens, boom, you can know the answer right away. And that's why when you guys share examples with me, boom, I can give you an answer right away because I've done this in my own life and been helping other people for a long time. So I know the answers right away, but you have to do that on your own, in your own life and get better and better at being this engineer where you're engineering this perfect sound with the equalizer. That's really helpful, yeah. And that's what we're doing in meditation as well, isn't it? As well as in daily life. Well, meditation's part of that. That's one part, right? Like the the right concentration is bringing the mind to the middle, developing that single-mindedness or singleness of mind. That's just one dial, right? That's why I say that a lot of times people think the way to enlightenment is meditation. There's a big misconception out there that they think the Buddha sat under a Bodhi tree and he just meditated his way to enlightenment. And then wham, he just became enlightened. That's not what he says at all in his teachings. He talks about this gradual progress, this gradual pursuit. In fact, I have it because uh, somebody asked me about it the other day and uh, I put it on my, my phone. He says, Bhikkhus, I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And then he goes on later in explaining what that practice is. So meditation is just one component of this massive equalizer of all of these things that need to be dialed in. And meditation is something that we need. It's a very important thing. And we need to dial that in and always be working on that practice. But all these other dials have some really important things that we need to hone in as well. So practice meditation and continue to evolve your practice, but also understand how all these other teachings need to be learned and practiced as well. We have a question on Zoom from Botak. Botak asks, if a mother has unconditional love for her drug addict son and she calls the police to get him arrested before her son gets into more problems, is this firm compassion? It could be, right? Like we don't want to judge somebody else of whether that is or isn't compassion. And the way that she's choosing to practice is her practice. She may see calling the police and having her son perhaps placed in jail as being the most compassionate thing she could do. Maybe she sees it as her son being on the street, perhaps he could get an overdose, he could get murdered, he could get robbed, he could get beat up, he could continue his addiction and get worse and worse and worse and ultimately have lots of problems. So I'm not here to judge whether that is or isn't compassion, but if that's what the mother feels is in the best interest for her son, then okay, 
you know, that's her choice. I remember when I was growing up and I was getting in trouble as a juvenile, I remember going to the police station several times. I, you guys don't know this about me, but I was a pretty bad little boy. And uh, my mom, she never came to the police station and got me. You know, my uncle, who was older than me, he always got bailed out by my grandparents and it led to all kinds of problems in his life. But my parents always said, you get in trouble, you got to get yourself out. And that was probably some of the best decisions that they ever made for me in, in their own life. And at one time I got in really bad trouble and I didn't know it until two or three years later. But my mom, I was actually on probation as a juvenile, believe it or not. And my mom had actually talked to my probation officer and asked them to put me away in a group home. And she said, you know, I can't handle him anymore and he needs to go away somewhere. And I didn't know it until two or three or four years later. But that experience of going away for 10 months to a a group home, like a boy's place where I got a lot of training and learning and development, it was absolutely the best thing that ever happened for me my entire life. And that was one, from my decisions of getting into trouble, but two, my mom talking in the background to people that could actually make decisions to put me in those situations. So I wouldn't judge whether this mom is either compassionate or uncompassionate. I think all parents make the decisions that are in the best interest of their children. And I don't think we should try to judge whether she's being compassionate or uncompassionate because it could probably be viewed in both ways. And we're not really in the best position to, to, to say one way or the other. And it doesn't really benefit us and it doesn't benefit them for us to try to judge. So we should just eliminate that interest or desire to judge another person's decisions. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay. So what you can do from this point is read this chapter. It's a very short chapter, and it just essentially makes you aware of these Brahma-viharas in very short order. It just explains them very clear and very concisely and says, hey, you need to practice these. Hopefully what you can see is by cultivating these healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, what you're essentially doing is reverting the opposites, right? So if the mind is selfish or self-absorbed by practicing loving kindness and compassion, you're essentially antidoting that selfishness. If your mind is jealous, right, you're antidoting that with sympathetic joy. If your mind is hectic and uncalm, you're antidoting that with equanimity. Or if you're looking at yourself as either above or below others, or you're judging other people, then by practicing equanimity, you're eliminating that judgment and you're viewing all beings as equal and you're practicing bringing the mind to the middle. So essentially what what you need to do in order to sometimes see what loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity are is see the opposites, is see that we can sometimes have resentment, we can have hatred, we can have anger, we can have frustration. The antidote to that is loving kindness. We can be selfish. We can be self-absorbed. The antidote to that is compassion. 
we can be jealous. The antidote to that is sympathetic joy. And then we can be hectic and uncalm and have a, a very scattered mind. The antidote is equanimity. Or we can judge other people, putting ourselves below or above, which is detrimental to our practice. So antidoting that with equanimity. So continue to learn these four mental states. You have loving kindness meditation to cultivate loving kindness, but these other ones, there's no magic formula, there's no magic potion, there's no chance or meditation that you can really do to cultivate this. You just have to get in touch with what they are and then practice it in daily life. In situations where you would maybe normally feel a little bit of jealousy, even if it's just your words, but inside you still feel kind of jealous, just go ahead and say the words and, and say, hey, I'm happy for you. That's really great. And even if you feel jealous still inside, at least you go through the, the speech and the actions of not being jealous and showing sympathetic joy. And over time, the mind will gradually move to where what's in the mind and what you're saying through your actions will be the same. We need to gradually move our mind in the direction of these four Brahma Viharas, just like we need to gradually practice, as the Buddha is talking about, all of his teachings, whether it's the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and all the others, we need to gradually move the mind in the direction of practice. What these four Brahma Viharas are doing is they're saying, here's the goal, here's, here's the goal, is have active goodwill for all beings without judgment. Now, wherever you are, just continue to work towards that more and more and more. If all you can do is put together the speech and the actions and the mind isn't really there yet, that's okay. Just work in that direction. We need to have concern for others' misfortune, for all beings. That's the goal. And just work your way in that direction more and more and more. You need to have a feeling of joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. That's the goal and continue to work in that direction more and more and more. And then you need to have this mental calmness and composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. And even though you can't snap your fingers, there's no magic potion, there's no special meditation that's gonna instantly change the mind because that doesn't exist, you know what the goal is and just work towards that. And in situations where you don't have that, reflect on it and just train the mind more and more and more to get there. And in situations, if you feel yourself judging other people, either putting them above you or below you, just know what the goal is, is to not do that. And then just gradually more and more and more practice to the point where you get to the point where you just see all beings as equal, treating all beings impartially, everyone impartially. So continue to learn these four Brahma Viharas, continue to ask questions, and continue to practice them. And you will see that the more you do this, the mind will gradually improve as you cultivate these healthy mental states. So I'll see you guys on Wednesday at nine o'clock when we're going to be practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. I have some more teachings from the Buddha that I'm gonna share with you around breathing mindfulness meditation to help you see some of the things he was talking about with breathing mindfulness meditation. So we'll learn more about breathing mindfulness meditation and do a session together. And then next Sunday at nine, we're gonna talk about true love. 
finally we're going to get to true love. I can tell you in terms of benefit for your practice and how to actually truly enjoy and get the most out of life, understanding this next chapter that we're going to tackle next week, chapter 14, true love, practicing non-attachment in our relationships and actually understanding what true love is, it's one of the most rewarding teachings that you'll learn. And the more that you practice it, your relationships will just get better and better and better. Whether you're with your life partners, your children, your friends, your coworkers, your parents, your relationships with people will just really blossom. So continue to focus on these four healthy mental states for this week. We'll do our breathing mindfulness meditation on Wednesday, exploring more teachings of the Buddha related to meditation. And then on Sunday, we're going to get into this really nice chapter about true love. So until then, have a wonderful day and a wonderful few days until I see you guys on Wednesday. Sawadeekhap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.